listening to the Save the Marriage podcast. Your marriage can be saved and strengthened if you have the right information. Join Dr. Lee Bauckham as he explores ways for you to improve your relationship and your life, starting right now. Hey, this is Lee Balkum, and this is the Save the Marriage Podcast, the podcast designed to help you save and restore your marriage no matter what's going on in it. Right now, I've been answering questions for the last few episodes. I've been answering questions for you, and I've got quite a few questions coming in. These are your questions about what's going on in your relationship, the places that you're stuck. Now, one question I have for you, if I haven't gotten your question yet, is where's your question? What what are you wondering about? Where are you stuck? Because if you're listening to the podcast, you've got to be saying, I need some help in this area. That's why you keep looking for that information. That's very important. It's a very important part of the process of moving forward. So where is your question? Have you gotten it to me yet? You can do that by sending me an email at podcast at savethemarriage.com. Now, that question, what I'm looking for is kind of the Goldilocks place, right? I'm looking for the place where there's the just right question. That doesn't mean it's the perfect question, but the important question is based on two things. Number one, if it's too specific, like it only would apply to your specific situation, that's really a coaching question. Now, you might have some specific details that you give me in that email to help me understand your question, but your question itself needs to be something that would apply to other people. If you have something so specific, you need a question answered by a coach. Hey, we've got coaching services. I do coaching. I've got a staff of coaches that can help you. We can help you with that question. Then there are the ones that are so broad. It's like, how do I save my marriage? Well, that's part of the topic of this, but it may be something that you really need some additional help with. So where were that you find that? Well, I've written a whole system. I've created a whole system, both written and audio, on how to save your marriage, no matter what's going on in it, and even if only you want it. And you can find that by going to savethemarriage.com. Savethemarriage.com is the beginning point. You can grab the Save the Marriage system and get started. You can also check out one of my books on Amazon. Uh, You can find those by going to savethemarriage.com slash books, B-O-O-K-S. You'll notice that there are a number of books, both on thriving in your life and on helping you understand what's going on in your relationship and restore it. And so you can find some extra help there. So let's go ahead and jump into today's questions because these both the questions I'm, I'm looking at today, they vary in what they're asking, but it basically is how long. And one is how long do I keep doing this before I give up? And the other is how long should it take to start some healing? So how long is our question today? They come from, and I'm just going to use the initials, B and J. So B, let's go with yours. Um, So you say, thanks for the podcast. It opened my eyes to what I've been doing wrong for so long. And uh, so what you talked about is the fact at the end, you talked about it during the podcast, you're realizing, yep, you've been doing those things, right? And, And so I don't want you to think about doing the stupid stuff. That's not what I think of as much as the I didn't know better stuff. So we do as best we can. That's my basic belief. We do the best we can, given where we are. We can always do better, and we are always striving to do better. But where we are, that's why we make the decisions we make. They make sense to us at that time. They seem reasonable. We have a reason for what we do. But when we know better, we do better. And so part of this podcast is about helping you know better so you can do better. 
So let's talk about your two questions. Number one, you say, how long in general does the recovery process usually go when trust is broken? Now, that's a pretty broad topic. And so you add some more detail to it. You say, I've heard someone, and I can't recall who or when or where, say that it is one month for every year of the issue, whether it's lying or unkindness or infidelity, etc., you say, obviously, I think there would be a minimum length of a recovery, but does this number seem right to you based on your experience? And my response to that is absolutely not. Uh, you say, I read it today where someone, not a professional, said it is a minimum of 36 months to get back to something normal. So B, one of the things that is clear is that we always want to put a time frame on something, right? We, we want to have this time that matters. So how long does it take? And I remember a, a lot of times uh, we hear that about grief. So when I was studying grief years ago uh, in my graduate school training, you know, they, they talked about how people have some arbitrary number about how long it should take for someone to get over the death of someone. And it would be six months or a year. And guess what? None of that really applies. There are so many different uh, pieces to this. Uh, for instance, you talk about it's just one month for each year of the issue, and then the issues you talk about vary, like lying or unkindness. I mean, unkindness, how do we define that, for instance, or infidelity? So what I've realized is that there are a number of pieces that play into how long it takes to recover. One piece of the puzzle is how the person who broke the trust responds, if somebody has insisted for a long period of time that nothing happened, A, or B, that it wasn't important, or C, it shouldn't matter to the other person as much as it does, that basically they need to get over it, it creates a secondary trauma. So you've got whatever it was that ruptured the trust, and then you have a secondary piece because you're not, not able to show that you're moving through an understanding of the pain, of the hurt. And so you have a secondary trauma to that. So whenever we uh, kind of treat it that way as the person who, who did the break in trust, you know, we, when we are dismissive of it or uh, put it on the other person uh, for why it's their problem or why it shouldn't be any big deal, or the big one I see is, yeah, but that was in the past. I've changed. You know, I'm, I'm a different person now. All of those can impact how long it takes. Then there is how the other person responds. There are some people who uh, will trust again and again and again, even in spite of having the trust ruptured by somebody. Sometimes they're desperate for that, and sometimes they just are people who believe in trust. Uh, and so that can make a difference too. And then there are those who, no matter what you do to fix it, will not trust again. Those are the two extremes. You know, they, they always trust or they never trust. And so it depends on their own makeup too. And it also depends on where they are. For instance, somebody who is very connected and really wants to stay in a relationship is much more willing to take a chance and trust again because they really want to get back to that relationship as opposed to somebody who is already kind of out. They've got you know, more of themselves out of the relationship. And because of that, they don't see a reason to trust. So one is a desperation to trust, or they see every reason to trust, and the other is I see no reason to trust. And so those pieces also fit in. It's a basic level of how trusting and how quick somebody is to trust or distrust, 
and where they are in relation to that relationship, how connected they are to the relationship. I used to see this very often uh, in marriage uh, or in family relationships when I'd be working with a whole family. Um, sometimes a, a, a broke, uh, broken trust was between a parent and a child, and there was no restoration because the child was headed out the door. You know, they're 17, 18, they're, they don't really care, and they're headed out the door. And I see it in relationships of marriage when one person has already really begun to move away from the marriage. And, and so they don't see a reason to take that risk. And sometimes it's just based on what has happened in their childhood or some other point in life where they just don't have a, a real strong capacity to trust or they have a desperation to trust. All those fit in. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you have control of one piece of this puzzle, how you respond to the trust that you broke. You can't uh, change how the other person responds. You can't affect that. And so you get to control what you have control over. You know, a lot of times people uh, try to shame somebody into trusting again or try to guilt them into that or try to rational them into that. You know, they try to be very rational with them and explain why they should trust again. And it's really kind of a, a waste of effort to try to convince somebody to trust you again as much as it is to ask the question, am I doing what I need to do? Have I taken responsibility? Have I apologized for my actions? Have I changed my behavior? And have I proven myself to be moving in a trustworthy way? Those are pieces of the puzzle that you get to work on. If you're constantly saying, you know, it was no big deal, or to say, well, I mean, you can't blame me for that, or to say it shouldn't really affect you, that keeps the process going longer. If you're able to say, yep, I get it. I broke the trust. And I understand that I have to be responsible for that. And I apologize for that. Those are all great beginning points. But then there's the next step of making changes to make sure you're not going to re-enter that, uh, that spot again. Now, one of the things I often see is that uh, people will apologize and then re-injure, right, and re-break the trust. And so my belief is that if you apologize and make no changes, you haven't really apologized. Now, let me be very clear. We all are going to make mistakes, there are times when all of us will fall short, will make a mistake, and that's the fact of life. And so I'm not saying you have to be perfect, but you have to be in the process of change and growth. You have to be in that process of self-expansion and becoming more than you've been in order to not fall into where you were. So those are the pieces that are within your control. And instead of being worried about how long it's going to take for the other person to do that, make it so that you're not, you're not making it longer. One of the things that I found out while I was doing the grief work is that you can't shorten grief, but you can sure lengthen it. You can't make somebody go through grief, but you can sure make sure that somebody's stuck in grief. And it's the same with this trust piece. You can't shorten how long it's going to take for them to step back into trust, but you can sure make it a much longer process and a much more difficult process by continuing to either uh, minimize or to avoid responsibility and to not apologize and to not make the changes. 
so all of those pieces are very important, much more important than getting fixated in how long is it uh, going to take? You know, what, what's the normal amount of time? So that brings us to your second question, which was, does breaking uh, of trust and not necessarily infidelity cause trauma or PTSD symptoms? So let's rephrase this and ask the question, can it? Sure, it can. Uh, part of what's involved in PTSD is such a shock and, and a loss of capacity of processing. It's often associated with traumatic events in life, like an accident or um, you know, an attack, something like that. Uh, so people who usually suffer from our traditional ideas of PTSD are people who have had very sudden traumatic events. So how would that fit in the rupture of trust? Well, what if you suddenly found this information and it creates images and thoughts and, and, and all of those lock-ins that happen with PTSD? So PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. These are when people have flashbacks and when they kind of lose touch with reality. And what's happened in our culture is that we have kind of Anybody who has a tough time with some trauma, we've labeled it as post-traumatic stress disorder at PTSD, and I think that does a disservice for people who truly had the flashbacks and, and kind of a loss of awareness of their current situation and are actually reliving it as if it is happening now, not having memories about it, not having moments of, of uh, memories popping up, but, but truly getting into a visceral feeling of being there. So is it possible? Yes. Is it uh, something that's common? No. Now, people who are coming through, for instance, finding about infidelity often do have a lot of flashpoints and trigger points and a lot of moments when they uh, just find themselves being stuck on that process. That's, just, that's how we deal with any trauma, but that doesn't make it, make it a post-traumatic disorder or stress disorder. So generally, no. But is it possible? Sure. Um, depending on how somebody particularly is going to respond to that stress. I'd have to know more about when you use that. My, my concern is this. Psychology gives us lots of terms. And then we tend to uh, make them uh, apply to situations where they don't. For instance, narcissism. That's another big one um, that we float around about how someone's narcissistic and and. You know, the fact is what they're really talking about is somebody is self-focused. They don't actually meet the clinical criteria for narcissism. And the same is true for PTSD. People throw that around all the time. When they are having some response to something, they say, oh, I have PTSD. They might have some post-traumatic stress, but it probably doesn't go to the level of disorder. Okay, so while we're talking about time or timing, Jay sent in the question and said uh, in the previous uh, podcast, uh, you covered the topic of encouraging signs that things are turning around. That was in a prior episode. And so the question is, my situation is we've been in the lock for one year. And uh, you say, I'm a big fan of your multiple books and apply your program to the letter. I see some positive signs, yet there is absolutely no intimacy. I'm not even talking about sex, but hugs, kisses, or holding hands are simply rejected. Even though I've not heard much about divorce lately or splitting up, she uh, recently told me that she doesn't want any intimacy. So the general question is, how long should I carry on before I throw in the towel? And you say you're determined to keep going on, give it a best shot for the kids and for the relationship. But you say uh, you're brutally aware that the longer it takes, my chances of success are dramatically lower. And you say, is that the case? And have you seen 
a miracle turnaround story after such a long time. So have I seen a miracle turnaround story? Absolutely. All the time. There are times when you don't see where, where things are changing. Uh, and so I often use the example of um, when you have a, like a tulip bulb or, or some out, flower bulb outside. So we have some in our front uh, yard and in the landscaping area. And every time we have plants that have bulbs, I just kind of dig a hole and throw them in and let them grow the next year. Here's the interesting thing about those flowers. They don't stay up all year. You know, we've got other plants around that come up all year. Those bulbs shoot up at a certain time in the spring. And they make a beautiful flower, then they die away, and then I cut them down back to the ground again, and they go dormant. But what's interesting about the dormant is you don't see the changes. You know, over the winter, it's cold, and and ice is over them, and the snow's on top of them, and you see nothing happening. But that doesn't mean nothing's happening. You just can't see it. It hasn't burst forth yet. So what happens is that inside there, the bulb is doing its thing. It's, it's bringing in nutrients and it's kind of pulling in all the stuff that it needs in order to burst forth the next spring. And so suddenly, while you think everything's dead, suddenly you see this little green sprout start up and it starts growing and suddenly flowers. Well, that's kind of the same thing that often happens in relationship. You don't see the fact that there's something changing. There's something growing and developing, and then suddenly it bursts forth. Does that guarantee that that's going to happen? No. I've got some bulbs that died somewhere along the way. They didn't shoot up. But I can't tell the difference between the two until I keep taking care of them. right? I keep fertilizing and making sure they're watered and all that good stuff to make sure that I've done what I can. So the lock you talk about is not really a lock. This is one of those myths that you know nothing is changing. There is no such thing as no change in life. There's no such thing as no change in relationships. Things are always changing and developing. Uh, and you may not be able to point your finger because it's not moving the way you wanted it to in the time frame you want it to. But that doesn't mean it's not growing and changing. So when we kind of see ourselves in a lock, that's an interesting reading because you tell me, I see some positive signs, right? But where you're using your yardstick, where you're deciding to see uh, how to equate that, it's in this one area, right? And it might be in other areas too, but I want you to notice that part of what we're often doing is looking at our own yardstick, Sometimes that yardstick isn't measuring everything. You know, if I go outside and I decide that it's the, warm, the, the sun, the light, how bright the sun is. Right now today, as I'm recording this, it's a dark sky. I'm not happy with cloudy days, but you know it is. But I can make the mistake and say, oh, it's so cloudy, so it must be cold outside, and walk out and realize that it's you know, in the 80s. Likewise, in the, the winter, I could walk out, and if I'm using the yardstick of how bright the sun is, I could walk out and it'd be 20 degrees but a bright sunny day, right? Because I'm using only one measurement. So we have to make sure that if we're going to kind of use some measurements, we're looking at a number of them to indicate it. And you've already talked about the fact that in some areas, things are improving. They're not improving where you want them to, specifically you want them to, but that doesn't mean they're not improving. That's one of the places where I caution against reading tea leaves. Either way, I mean, a lot of people think that when I say reading tea leaves, I'm suggesting that, you know, you don't read something bad into it. And other people think that I'm talking about not reading good stuff into things. But I'm talking about period. 
reading tea leaves, trying to figure out how some pattern that you're seeing right now extrapolates into the future. It's always dangerous. So the real question is, and you say it, how long should I carry on before I throw in the towel? Well, throwing in the towel, that's a very interesting metaphor. It comes from boxing. And what happens is that the person in the corner realizes that the, their fighter is in trouble and they throw the towel into the ring and that tells the ref to stop the fight. So be cautious about the fact that that's the image you're using, right? And be aware that that's, that throwing it in is for you to admit defeat. And what you're really working towards is giving it your best effort. I don't know that you have to make the decision about when enough is enough. You can. That's always your right. It's always a choice. You know, how long are you willing to do it? I've talked with people who have said, hey, I'm willing to give this one month. If this doesn't turn around in one month, I'm out the door. I can't stop them from doing that. I don't encourage it. I have some people who say, you know what? I'll give it four months or six months or eight months or even a year. And that's a choice they make. They draw that line in the sand. And I think it's an arbitrary sign. But I also have people who said, you know what? I would keep staying in this relationship and it's not happy. We're not happy. It's miserable, but I would keep doing it for 10, 15, 20 years. Well, at the same time, I'm, I'm asking the question, if you can't get things to change at that point, you might be doing more damage than not, right? But what I do know is that each person gets to choose how long you are willing to do it. When people come and ask my advice, my advice is, to do it as long as you're willing to, and when the other person makes some action where you are no longer willing to, you'll know it. So that gives you the choice. Here's the real thing. And so, Jay, this is true for you, and B, this is the same for you. The question is how long you are willing to keep moving forward and what you need to help you move through that process. One of the things that I know is that we are, as humans, always growing and changing and expanding. And so if you go, okay, I'm not quite in getting the results I'm wanting. I'm not quite getting where I want to go. One of the questions you have to ask is, are there some other resources that I might need to tap into? This is true throughout our life, right? I mean, sometimes we say, okay, you know, I've got this basic plan. So let, let me just kind of give an example from my own life around my fitness and, and taking care of myself. When I was sick, I was out of shape. I was overweight, stressed out, not doing well. After I got better and I started exercising, that kind of created a cascade of events. So I go to the gym and I start a basic program. And that basic program gets me kind of a foundation. I could have said, you know what? This is great. I've got a basic program. I'm not quite getting the effect I want. I'm not losing the weight I want. I'm not losing the stress I want. I'm not getting as shape. But, you know, I've got this basic plan. So I might as well rely on this basic plan. But along the way, I went, hey, you know what? I'd like to do 
this. And so I added on you know, running and trail running and mountain biking and paddle boarding and lots of other activities. And I had to kind of figure out the information to do that. Along the way, I've also varied my diet. So uh, kind of early on, I just tried to eat better, right? Just by basic ideas. And then I started looking for information and I found a couple of different ways to do that. And each time I would say, okay, I've got the best of this. Now what can I add on to make it better? So basically it was upping my game step by step by gaining extra tools. Now, how does that apply? Well, if you've got the save the marriage system, you have kind of, here it is, the basic level that's going to apply to everyone. But if you're not quite getting the results you want from that, you might decide to step into something else like my VIP virtual coaching program, which is uh, basically giving you tool after tool, resource after resource. And you can say, I need this. I don't need that. I want to take advantage of this. I want to do this. It's got tools about how to set up your day from beginning to end. It's got a fill in the blank plan. It's got so many resources to add to and expand what you're already doing. If you needed something a little further, you might say, Hey, I want some coaching, right? And so a coaching a relationship with one person, either one of my coaches or myself, can help you get even extra places. And there are other resources out there. I've got books. Other books are out there. You've just got to make sure that they fit into your overall approach. And so what I basically did as I was getting into better shape and eating better was anything that I could pull into my understanding of what was working best for me was going to expand my knowledge base and and make me get to a better place. And that was my approach, right? I had a basic foundation. So if you're worried about the time involved, you want to focus on what you can do to make it the best use of that time. Just looking at the time frame is not the right approach, but looking at where you can bring in more resources and make yourself even more effective, that's where the power comes from. So if you're interested and you don't have even the basic level of the Save the Marriage system, the place to get that is savethemarriage.com. Savethemarriage.com will get you there. You can check out my books at savethemarriage.com slash books, B-O-O-K-S. That will put you on Amazon's book page. Now, you can get my books anywhere you want to, but that's a good place for you to kind of read about them and see them all in one place. If you need coaching, go to savethemarriage.com slash coaching. That's savethemarriage.com slash coaching and decide what makes the best sense to expand what you're already doing and moving into something else. What you don't want to do is get so focused on a time frame that you don't look for the other pieces of what you can pull into your process. Okay, B and J, that gets your answers to your questions. Now to everyone else, Where's your question? If you want to send it to me, send it to podcast at savethemarriage.com. That's podcast at savethemarriage.com. And then listen in to see if it gets answered in a future podcast. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best as you work to save your marriage. You've been listening to Save the Marriage Podcast. For more information and help, please visit us at savethemarriage.com. 